Good evening. Uh, my name is Raj Ribeiro. I'm the president of the Economic Society, and it's my uh, pleasure to welcome Professor Balsarovic um, to LSE tonight. Um, this lecture forms part of our Economist and Residence Lecture Series um, and has brought, brought leading academics from across the country and the world to speak at the LSE to some of the brightest and most interesting students in the country. Um, I'm going to keep it short and hand straight over to Damon Chalmers, who will give a short formal introduction to the lecture, which, as you can see, is on the transformation in CE, and the results, the lessons, and the prospects. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you very much all for coming. I'm Damien Chalmers, head of the European Institute. So it was a little bit intimidating. First, speaking in here because you were at the projector gleaming, uh, glaring in your face. Secondly, I think it's the first time as a lawyer that I've spoken to so many economists. But of course, I think I was invited today because the topic's about Europe, in particular Central and Eastern Europe. 20 years of transformation. What have we learned? Results, lessons, and prospects. In this regard, there's probably no one better placed anywhere to speak about it than Professor Lezek Bogorovich. He was at the centre of the significant reforms, one could say, if you like, the path-leading reforms that were realised by Poland in the late 1980s. He's been a central bank governor, finance minister, newspaper journalist, so all possible sources of power. He now works as uh, head of Bruegel, in my view, possibly the most interesting think tank in Brussels, leading forward as to, and we'll get out of the current difficulties we now, now face in Europe. He will speak for about half an hour, and then we will take questions. I hope you will join me in warmly welcoming him to the floor. Thank you, very, thank you very much. <clears throat> First of all, let me say that the topic <clears throat> is not a parochial one. I think why it is so important, not only because it refers to a rather important part of the world, but first of all, I think this, this transformation <clears throat> is one of the very few freedom-enhancing radical changes in the contemporary history. So everybody interested in institutional change in a radical way and in the freedom enhancing direction should be interested in this. Not only because of Central and Eastern Europe. And this is a living laboratory. We have very, very rarely had such an opportunity to study and to test various theories. What I am going to do is try to do something impossible to discuss this few huge subject in 30 minutes, but I think I was rather known as shock therapist. So I try to do my best. <laughs> First, just to remember, if you discuss a change, you have to discuss initial conditions, very briefly. What was socialism <coughs> as a system, institutional system? This was the most status system in the world history, except perhaps for pharaohs in Egypt. It meant that uh, all kinds of individual freedoms were banned, and attempts to use them were branded as crimes. They were crimes against socialism. If you try to set up an enter private enterprise, or travel without permission, or set up a newspaper. This was all crimes against socialism. 
And this was the defining characteristic. The second one, not as crucial, was that uh, this no state system in contemporary history was combined with what I called an overgrown socialist welfare state. This was the more present side. Partly because of inefficiencies. You do, you, there was no open unemployment because the system was so hugely inefficient. <laughs> so people thought it was, it is always better to be unemployed on the job that opened unemployed. <laughs> okay, and leave it. Now, <clears throat> there were huge costs in terms of opportunity costs, but sometimes not only. There were human costs. Remember Stalin, Mao, millions of people were killed, but there were also economic costs in a sense that every country which had socialists for a number of years have lost a lot compared a country which had capitalistic economy, even not the most efficient. Look at Poland and Spain, 1950, the same per parking income, 1990, Poland had only 42%. The same goes for Hungary and Austria. Of course, the most extreme difference is between North and South Korea. Look, seven per, uh, the same per capita per income, 1950, then 7%. North Korea has 7% of South Korean per capita income plus million of people who, had, who died. China, very briefly. You have two phases in China. This is Maoism. And China was diverging, was not catching up with Western Europe then. You have this Chinese economic growth. What happened? Has China invented better socialism? As many people think. De facto, China makes an undeclared transition towards capitalism, as defined by private ownership. So you have a very clear interest in the share of private or quasi-private enterprises. China has tremendously opened to outside world, etc., etc. Okay. <coughs> so, socialism was very costly. Why? Because socialism was the, the most status system in contemporary history. It was depriving people of all kinds of freedoms, including economic, which are crucial for growth. What has happened very briefly after the collapse of socialism? What is striking that there are the diverging institutional trajectories. So Central Eastern European countries have and now have been functioning democracies, while what is called commonwealth of, uh, of states, you have either autocracies or semi-autocracies. This is very clearly, more clearly visible. These are measures taken from polity four. So you see differences. Basically, we have uh, countries which are democracies. They include Central and Eastern Europe, but also Mol Mongolia. And also, to some extent, uh, uh, Moldova. I would, Ukraine, even the democracy of Ukraine, even though it's pretty, I would say, chaotic. It is a democracy. Now, the opposite camp, so to say, there are autocracies like Central Asia and Belarus, and then semi-autocracies like Russia or Kazakhstan. Now, what's interesting is that all the democracies have more or less ca capitalistic system, while among non-democracies, most of them has more like kept the status economy. 
and only some of them, like Russia and Kazakhstan, try to move into the Chinese di direction. Meaning democracy, no, capitalism, yes. <laughs> Even though it is rather status capitalism. This confirms old truth. You cannot have democracy without capitalism. While capitalists can be combined either with democratic regime or non-democratic regime. This is nothing new, but it's being confirmed by this living laboratory. There are also differences, this I will skip. This is a stylized description of the enormity of institutional change in Central and Eastern Europe, but we may return to that. Now, this also confirms that uh, countries which moved towards capitalism also have maintained democracy. I will skip that. And this, uh, this uh, describes differences in the court system. There are very interesting differences in the court system regarding impartiality and effectiveness. Now, to sum up, countries of Central and Eastern Europe are about the same level of impartiality and independence as Greece, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. Not yet at the Danish or Finnish uh, level, but efficiency of the courts, as measured by the speed, is usually better. And it's not a great compliment to say that your courts are more efficient than those in Italy or Greece. <laughs> this is the fact. Okay. Now, let me move to the third point. The second point is different trajectories. And it's a very interesting question. I haven't discussed why. Now I move to more solid facts. <laughs> economic and non-economic outcomes during the last 20 years. And the striking fact is enormous differences have appeared, both in a, along economic dimension and non-economic dimension. You see here GDP growth, aggregate. So the differences between, this compares the level of GDP 2008 to that in 89. So the range is between plus 77% in Poland and minus 29 in Ukraine. And you see differences. In terms of per, per capita income, you see Poland on the one hand, or Georgia, Ukraine on the other hand. This is something which should be very mobilizing for the Polish audience and for Poles in general. How much have been catching up on Germany? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you see, you see, you see. This is the Polish catching up on Germany. It's not yet finished. It requires a little more mobilization to catch up on Germany, not in 50 years time, but in 20. If you need a mobilizing goal for Poland, this is that. <laughs> and can you imagine the satisfaction? <laughs> well, it, is at, it would be at least as great as the one which was felt by the Irish when they have overtaken Britain. And it was the fact. So this is the trajectory. <clears throat> now, on inflation, everybody has reduced inflation compared to the initial levels, which were very high, but you can see to unequal levels. And countries which have lower inflation now, on the whole, enjoyed more rapid growth. While countries which have high inflation, like Ukraine, Kazakhstan, have enjoyed slow. On average, there are exceptions, which mean, means that low inflation is good for your growth. Remember that. 
low inflation, rapid inflation may be good, if at all, for very short-run growth. Now, what's interesting, and this is less often noted, that huge differences appeared not only in economic outcomes, but in non-economic too. Look at life expectancy at birth. You can see that in most countries it has increased. In Poland, from 71 to 75. Say, Croatia, 70 to 76. And these are mostly the weaker sex, which are men, which usually die on average earlier, the strongest. But there are some exceptions. Look at Ukraine. It has declined. Look at Russia. Because this and this decline is again centered on male part of the population and probably has something to do with improper consumption of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the quantity by the structure. No. What they are told by the doctors that two glasses of red wine is supposedly good for your health, but a bottle of vodka is not so good. <laughs> Now, another very important indicator is infant mortality. You can see that there has been a tremendous improvement, say in Poland from 17 per 1,000 live births to seven, the same for Serbia, but improvement is unequal. So Ukraine 25 to 24, so much smaller. So improvement, yes, but very, very different. And I can uh, also, there's an improvement in environmental pollution, change. So CO2 is a very watched uh, indicator. So you can see that in most countries, uh, the emission of CO2 per capita have declined. You can see this. But again, the decline is different, say, where in Russian Federation, from 16 to 12, whereas Poland, it's somewhere here, 9 to 8 is different. Now, there are some other differences in the, uh, in the inflows and stock of FDI, but I will stop here. I can say that adding indicators would not change the fundamental conclusions. During 20 years, after the collapse of socialism, enormous differences appeared both in economic and non-economic dimensions of the quality of life. And of course, we are very much interested why. <laughs> this, this is the living laboratory. Now, we don't need to speculate. We don't need to engage in magical thinking, like saying social is good, shock therapy is bad. It's magical thinking. Because there's a massive empirical research which tries to respond to this question, focusing for a while on differences in the long-run growth. What would be the conclusions of this massive research? I try to summarize them. This is my reading of extensive empirical literature. There are two main factors, the variation of which explain these huge differences. The one is the extent of market reforms. What are the market reforms if you start from socialism? Privatization is absolutely fundamental. Liberalization meaning that you remove command economy, you remove restraints, and you have markets. It's the second very important 
If possible, you reduce the fiscal size of a state. If fiscal spending to GDP is too high, this was typical. This was the typical situation. But market reforms also mean that you try to transform what is the core of the state. What is the core of the state? The state does not need to be very social. And if it is, it's pretty dangerous to the people. But the state, a good state has to have good police, professional prosecutors, good judges. This is the core of the state. So a transformation involves reduction in the state presence, which is harmful, and improving of those parts of the state which is beneficial for longer term economic growth. These are the main direction, not only in Central and Eastern Europe, whenever a country has a problem. It usually has to do with at least one of these two. The, state is, the states are usually overgrown, fiscally, regulatory, or directly through having the political power of their enterprises through state ownership, or, and or they are weak and they should be strong. Okay, now, so the first factor which explains the differences a factor in the extent of market reforms. But there is a second factor, and this has been confirmed by many, many uh, independent investigations. This is just a sample, but there is a second factor. And the second factor deals with uh, macroeconomic policies. These are those policies who are responsible for the growth of demand relative to the growth of the potential power. And if the demand, meaning spending, grows too fast, it is very pleasant, because we call it boom. But booms have an unpleasant inclination to go bust. <laughs> we are nowadays witnessing that, and this is why it is prudent, since busts are very unpleasant, are costly in terms of growth, it's better to avoid excessive booms. And this depends on how expansionary fiscal policy, how expansionary monetary policy, and how prudent or imprudent is banking supervision. There are three policies. Of course, these policies matter only if the, if the people who are responsible for these policies are independent from the political power. So you can't have these policies under dictatorship. They are, they are just epiphenomena of they are just vassals. <laughs> they matter if the power, political power, is limited. And the quality in these three dimensions is matters. And what we know from experience that uh, expansionary macroeconomic policies are extremely costly. Extremely. Because they lead to deep financial crisis, debt crisis. We are witnessing this now. And they explain the differences in this policy are second reason for the differences in outcomes. You see this if you compare Hungary and Poland, for example. Hungary has a reformed at least as much as Poland. But <coughs> Hungarian macroeconomic policies, especially fiscal, were even worse than Polish ones. So even more catastrophic. Ours between two Polish, between 2005-2007, were only very bad. While in Hungary they were catastrophic. <laughs> Why? They spent it as crazy. And they had a crisis even before the global crisis erupted. And they had to cut spending very deeply. And they suffered partly because of that 7% decline in GDP 
last year. So I think there are clear lessons, clear general lessons. I will skip more specific lessons, and I would move very briefly to another subject. I skip that. Ah, one more. Why? That's interesting question, which is not as widely investigated as the one regarding uh, economic outcomes. Why? It is so that there is pretty strong correlation between economic and non-economic outcomes, meaning that countries which achieve better results on economic growth tend to achieve better results in health, for example, environment, which means that capitalism is good for your health. It's not often realized. <laughs> yes, that's not of a statement. It is. But why? <laughs> that's an interesting I leave it with this puzzle. You may ask some questions. Why moving towards capitalism is good for your health, as long as it is a free, more, more or less free market capitalism? And why moving towards free market capitalism, lots of competition, hard budget constraints, is also good for environment? That's enough. That's empirical fact. But why? I leave you with this question, and I move further. Now, I move to another fundamental factor, which is this. Global financial crisis. Now, of course, it would require a longer meeting to explain what were the causes. I'd only say, and this probably may provoke some questions, that the popular interpretation which blamed the greedy bankers the fi extensive financial innovations are very superficial to not to say wrong. Because they completely um, omit huge public policy errors in such countries like United States and Britain. So these countries, Britain would have a crisis even if US did not engage in these policies. I would only mention that monetary policy was extensively in Fed policies Greenspan doctrine meaning that you do nothing against the growing bubble, but then you try to ease had longer term consequences. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were not exactly typical private enterprises. US Congress exerted powerful pressure upon financial institutions, etc., etc. There's a huge error and very dangerous one to blame markets for this crisis. Why? Because if most of the public opinion draws this conclusion, you would have a pressure against reforms. And we would not only deal with the crisis, but with wrong policies as a consequence of wrong interpretation, factual wrong interpretation. This is why I'm saying that. I've seen lots of books, including the nearby library, with this wrong interpretation. <laughs> because nonsense is distinct from so some intellectual products in soft sciences like economics sell better than good products because they evoke powerful emotions like envy, greed, hatred, etc. Okay, now coming back to this problem of uh, the impact. I would leave that. Now the impact. The impact of the global crisis up upon the Central and Eastern European countries depended very much on two factors. First of all, let me say, it was very, very different. The range is from my minus, say, 18 in Latvia, more 10 or more in uh, Hungary, to say between one and two in Poland, plus. So huge range, well. To cut a long story short, I think there are two main factors, first, 
how dependent on external markets was a country. And this, in turn, larger countries on the whole are less dependent on external markets. So Poland was hit less than Lithuania. I don't think we should be proud that well, there are more numerous Poles than Lithuanians. This is not something which depends on the present generation. Uh, but it helped us, it helped Poland. Second, how vulnerable a country was because of the past mistakes, policy mistakes. And here, fiscal, I mentioned Hungary, fiscal expansion in Hungary, also fiscal expansion in Britain, which predated the crisis, made them badly prepared for the crisis. Second, countries of Central and Eastern Europe hugely diff differed in the rate of growth of domestic credit to household. You see that. And some countries engaged in wrong type of shock therapy. They allowed huge expansion, huge credit booms, which had to, and very sadly, and they did. Crisis, global crisis, accelerated and deepened. The result of the previous credit falls, and they suffered. Okay, so the conclusion is again, be prudent in macroeconomic policies, be radical in reforms if possible. And this leads me to the last, okay, to the lessons. And the lessons are the following. Based on what my reading of extensive, extensive empirical literature, there would be two lessons. If you start from a status system, the more you reform the system in the direction of reasonably free markets which are well protected by the state, so clear property rights, good, good enforcement of property rights, so good justice system, the better for your longer term growth. The more also you reduce excessive pres fiscal presence of the state, so inherited welfare state. By the way, you don't need extensive welfare state to have welfare. If you have extensive welfare state in a poor country, you can't have welfare. I'm saying this because there's a popular myth that without welfare state, welfare is impossible. It is called European social model. <laughs> okay, so if you inherit, and this was a typical situation for former socialists, they inherited huge fiscal states. And reduction of them, which requires uh, better spending systems, it's important, very important. And I would say, not only based on, uh, on literature, but my own observation and say policy. This is probably the most difficult reform, political, the most resistant. And this is why a lot remains to be done. <coughs> In most countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Then I mentioned macroeconomic policies, the important, the social importance, I am using this word to manipulate you, social importance of prudent fiscal and uh, monetary policy, as it cannot be overestimated. If you look at history, what you see, lots of catastrophes produced by expansionary policies, fiscal. Until today, I can't find just single country which has suffered because of excessive fiscal discipline. Can you find one? Which suffered in terms of longer term economic growth. Of ex I can't find one, which probably shows that it's a huge asymmetry. There are powerful forces within each society which push the state towards fiscal expansion 
and the countervailing forces are weak. So if you want to avoid catastrophes, strengthen the countervailing forces. Which brings me to the ultimate lesson. It's not extremely difficult to say what works and what fails. If you want to get economic growth so as to make a poor country a rich one. This is Adam Smith's question. To be sure, you have to repeat certain truths. So I repeat. You have to reduce the harmful presence of the state and strengthen those parts of the state which are beneficial. But the ultimate challenge is to do it. And in democracies, since in every free society you have, for various reasons, powerful status so forth, it requires a mobilization, a systematic, organized, and professional mobilization of those people who believe that a limited state, rule of law, freedom, are indispensable factors for economic growth and for respecting the dignity of man in practice. So I end with a call to mobilization. Thank you very much. <laughs>
and their successes are very important. But they are regarded as marginal, completely marginal. And this is why, as you noticed, uh, well, this was not me who financed the book. This was my successor. But I, I read it and uh, came to the conclusion it's worth rec being recommended. So perhaps this would grow, perhaps, but not in the foreseeable future. So you have to look on uh, how to you can improve the working of the monetary and financial system within the existing paradigm, which means that you are going to have the fired money, which is called in Polish papierowy. It's not any paper money anymore because you don't need paper to create money nowadays. <laughs> and you work with a fractional banking system and you try to improve it. And an attempt was made by, say, oh, De La Rosière report. I was a member of it. You have identified um, reforms which would make this system within the parada a bit better. Yes. that Greece is in trouble does not necessarily mean that Europe is in trouble. Look, in the United States, California is in trouble. Uh, Rhode Island is in trouble. New York is in trouble financially. Would, do people say United States and dollars are in trouble? No. I know the differences between the United States and European Union. You don't need to point out a certain thing, but still. There are drastic adjustments, fiscal adjustment in California, drastic fiscal adjustment in some other states. Probably as drastic as the ones which are required in, in Greece. So I would not equate the two. <coughs> but what matters is that uh, I think that uh, in order to, one should not shift problems instead of solving them. Shifting would mean bailout, which would be a substitute for adjustment. Like in this sense, the European Union is a crossroads. If it creates a more huge moral hazard, then the problem may spread. So this is the checking point. On Euro, I, am base, I try to base my judgments, which are empirical, on empirical research. Uh, and there are three reports, which I know, which are pretty professional, which try to um, establish what are, the net, what are the net benefits, if any. Of countries, of, for countries of Central and Eastern Europe from Euro adoption. They try to list all the costs and all the benefits and the risks. And all of them come with the conclusion that net benefits should, should be large, that benefits should be larger than costs. Not every year. This is long term calculation. And as long as uh, I don't see uh, report which would professionally prove the opposite, I would be for adoption of Euro. All the more that to adopt Euro, Poland needs to reform, and these reforms are needed independently from Europe. So if you want to have Euro, engage in fiscal reforms. <laughs> Streamline fiscal spending. 
independent. So this is my, the case, my case for, for Europe. <coughs> but more, perhaps one thing, the recent crisis has shown how dangerous it is for countries to have excessively low interest rates. It is United States, but also within the Eurozone, who suffered the most, Ireland and Spain. And in these two countries, the European Central Bank's interest rates were clearly too low. But the conclusion, the policy conclusion would be to come out with a certain supplement. And this supplement is called macroprudential regulation. So instruments which are different than interest rates, because you can't operate your own interest rates when you are a member of the Eurozone. And there is a work in progress. How could you slow down the growth of credit if you think it is successful? More questions? First of all, thank you very much indeed, Professor, for the lovely appointment of the college students. So on behalf of course, thank you very much again. And my question is, uh, how did you feel when you were called by IMF as a too liberal economist in the course of the transition process? I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but if it happened, it was not one of my main problems. No, this is not synonymous. Well, if you ask me, first of all, I, for example, I can disclose that I invited when I was for the second time in the government between 97 and 2000. I wanted to see, speed up restructuring of mine, Polish mining, coal mining. So I invited the World Bank. And I was hoping that they would push for privatization, but they didn't. They were too statist. <laughs> so they were very happy with lending. <laughs> And they did some restructuring without restructuring without privatization is not the very last thing. It has to be completed. Now, to the second question, <coughs> well, I already mentioned that there are certain functions of the state which are probably cannot be replaced by informal institutions. And they have to deal with the classical definition of the state as a protector, but not as a social protector. No, it's a protector against physical violence. And this includes police, law and order, and national defense. As you know, these goods are the closest we have to what is called public goods. They're not ideal public goods. But most of the goods which are nowadays financed publicly are private goods. Education is a private good. If you don't pay, somebody else pays. You know it. OK. Uh, health is a private good because it, cannot, it can be paid individually, and in many countries it is. So there are certain, certain forces different than the nature of goods which push the state beyond its, uh, its certain minimum. Uh, I, I mentioned these forces, <laughs> and they win whenever there's enough uh, efficient uh, countervailing uh, power, organized and acting all the time. First of all, most recessions were caused by the state. 
remember, in the sense of deep declines in GDP. Uh, usually there are financial crisis or fiscal crisis. To think as a state, as the only force which only protects us against vagaries of the market is uh, a wrong view. It's absolutely anti-empirical. Most economic catastrophes were caused by the states, usually non-democratic, but democracy has also their own record of follies. So, and I think having expanded state, it means tolerating a very big danger to society. What would be the result of fiscal expansion nowadays? We don't know, but many people are worried. And I think they are justly worried. Whether it's going to be expansion of monetary easing. Perhaps these were the necessary steps to try to neutralize the consequences of the boom. But the boom was largely created by public policy errors. And BIS was very, I remember the analysis of BIS. So the state, what is doing, the state is intervening in order to try and tries to neutralize the effects of these previous errors while creating perhaps the seeds of new errors. So, I and this is right. So the question of keeping the state limited is not ideological. It's hugely empirical. You want to protect the people against economic and social catastrophes. This is the moral and institutional case for the limited state. Now, this does not mean that you, I want to limit the state to zero. <laughs> and I already mentioned what are the necessary roles. Remember that expansion of some expansions of the state are results of previous expansion. So I call it the interventionist spiral. For example, in the 30s, what happened in the financial sector in the 30s? There was a widespread introduction of deposit insurance, which was spread all over the world. And uh, uh, deposit insurance became more and more generous. What does it mean in practice? You eliminate market discipline in the sense that the people who have deposits, savings, they are looking what bank is more solid. As a result, and this is empirics, their uh, capital to asset ratios has declined all over the world with the introduction of deposit insurance. So banks became much more fragile. They were much higher, these uh, this ratios in the 19th century. So you have an unintended or undesirable consequence of one form of intervention, which is introduction of deposit insurance, and you need another form of intervention, which is banking supervision. So you have to substitute for market discipline, which was replaced by the first intervention, to try to ameliorate the consequences of this intervention. So, and banking supervision, banking supervision are not angels and they are not omnipotent. And sometimes they are, usually they are not as good, well paid as the bankers. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it is, so sometimes to roll back the state, it's not enough to roll back one intervention. Because some interventions, as I said, are results of previous intervention. This makes for the indivisibility of reforms. If you deal with a very state system, and socialism was a very state system with lots of links, and it could not be reformed by small doses. You do not abandon socialism by small steps. It has a fatal power of attraction. Yeah. You 
therapy, apart from your deep concern about the fact that uh, funerals are still subsidized in both <laughs> I explain, what does it mean? <laughs> Well, if we set ourselves the goal to to catch up with Germany in 100 years' time, it is complete. But it's not an ambitious goal. <laughs> if you want to improve our standard of living faster, it's not complete. And what we need to complete, let me repeat, is reducing the harmful presence of the state, completing privatization. This is, includes some deregulation. But if you want to deregulate lastingly, not to have ways of regulation and deregulation, you have to have better deputies. Who creates the law? Deputies. So you have to choose better. <laughs> so we are going back to the civil society. Fiscal. In Poland, the spending to GDP ratio is now 45-47%. It used to be 42 It's still way too much. It's much higher ratio than in, when, when in Sweden, when Sweden had per capita income of Poland in the 60s. So and this is the most difficult political reform, which needs uh, mobilization. So I would say this is still a very interesting agenda to mobilize around. <laughs> and of course, the justice system, it needs to be more efficient. That's also important. And uh, a bit more just. <laughs> Could I take you up on the last question? How would you make the justice system more efficient? Um, curious, because all over the world we have inefficient justice systems. and. Uh, as a lawyer, I'm just not sure how one uh, okay. makes them efficient. Okay, let me show you. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you measure the efficiency? I am speaking about the courts now. But the same refers to police and to prosecutors. You measure by the time it takes to settle, say, disputes and the costs. And you see huge differences according to doing business across countries. For example, in, say, in Denmark, it takes, on average, 380 days, while in Greece, uh, in Italy, it takes 1,390 days to settle the same time of a dispute. So huge difference, yes? Now, and this is, has nothing to do with the number of lawyers or judges. There's lot, there are a lot of judges in Italy. <laughs> so it, is it has to do with organization. Now, if you look at Central Eastern European countries, then you see that uh, the ranges from, say, I would exclude Belarus because perhaps justice system is a bit too speedy there. <laughs> <laughs> so, but say, Slovenia, 250, yes, Slovenia, Slovenia, Russia, and Poland, unfortunately, which takes 830 days for the same kind of a dispute. So there are differences, and there are ways. This is a question of organization. Absolutely, very, very simple, and you have to make your law a bit less complex. But this is my question, what yes. other ways? Because I give you, okay, sure. absolutely elementary reforms. Allocative efficiency requires that on the margin, you uh, allocate the same resources to similar tasks. So in Poland, for example, we have courts who are overburdened, and there are some other courts which are pro uh, do not nothing, do nothing, or very little. 
So uh, misallocation of resources. Simple organization too. You have to, you, you can organize work much, much better. So this is nothing earth shattering. It's rather simple. Some countries managed to, for example, Slovakia under Jurinda has managed to reform the courts much better than so far we did it in Poland. Another reform or direction is to make the judgment more accurate. And this is about the justice. So to reduce or to minimize the ratio of innocent people who are prosecuted and to reduce the number of, uh, of crimes without uh, perpetrators. And for that you need uh, to analyze the incentive system of police, prosecutors, and judges. Something which is not very well investigated, but I think it's crucial. Because the prosecutor should, should risk his career or her career if he prosecutes somebody with very weak case. And it happens. And also, if your justice system is very slow, as in Poland on average, you may a person may be arrested, kept in prison, temporary arrest for five years, and there's already a punishment, regardless of whether you are considered guilty or non-guilty. <laughs> so if a justice is too slow, it cannot be very just. Thank you. More questions? A lady in front here. So who, who are you? Sounds, sounds very interesting. So the questions are very interesting. question is, first of all, countries differ in the extent of uh, informal economy. Both in, among Western economies, you probably know that Italy is probably number one, but Sweden is not very far away for different purposes. In Sweden, because of taxes, in Italy, because of regulation. Uh, there are huge differences across uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And you have probably a much larger second economy in Ukraine than in Poland. Now, what are the main reasons for the differences? Why people try to not to be in the formal economy? Mixture of reasons. First, if you have, uh, like in Russia, it was there are interesting studies on Russia. If it is a predatory regulation and inspections, yes. if you are a victim of public officials, you try to hide. <laughs> so you go informal. But Operating informally, you cannot use the services of the official justice system because you are informal. But you may have disputes. Who do you turn to? To mafia. Yes, it has been shown because the mafia, in fact, the basic functions of the mafia is not very different from the basic functions of the state. <laughs> don't be surprised, don't laugh. <laughs> yes, study the studies of, on mafia. Uh, conflict resolution. <laughs> 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 yes, study, the, for example, Italian mafia, Comoro. The same legal, they have special legal system. 
they have their own police. Only they are not, you may be a policeman, uh, uh, being an ordinary man, etc. It's an executor. Okay, now, but this was half jokingly. Now, so one reason is if you have over-regulated state and corrupt officials or squeezed inspectors, then people go informal if they can, and then they turn to mafia. Second, if the official taxes are very high, yes, then you try not to pay them or to pay them only partially, so you have tax evasion. So both these two reasons have to do with an overgrown state. So I would say that non-harmful ways, you of course may try to reduce this through increased punishments. But then the result may be that people stop operating in the economy at all. So they, turn, they prefer to be public officials, employees. So neither formal nor informal. Everybody will be an official. <laughs> so like mandarins in China. So it's not a better, so uh, uh, measures to re uh, which reduce uh, informal economy without uh, hurting very much uh, growth have to reduce the reasons, which are excessive regulation, excessive in in inspections, and excessive taxes. I think there may be combinations of these reasons. I was interested in microcredit even before, uh, when I was in government. I remember I read an interesting story about Grameen Bank and its creator, Dr. Yunus. And I thought it's a very beautiful idea, which resembles to some extent 19th century Europe. Uh, there were um, cooperatives of poor people. And I thought this is a beautiful idea because it's not based on gifts on transfers, but of trying to help people to be entrepreneurs. Uh, very poor people. In Bangladesh, mo mostly women, because they try to be more responsible and uh, borrowers than men. <laughs> and there was a lady who worked in large investment bank, and she's got interested in that and asked me advice. I thought, risk this, create microcredit in Poland, and it was a success. So you now have microcredit initiatives even in richer countries. Because in rich countries, you have some poor people. In poor countries, most, most of the people are poor. In rich countries, minorities are poor. <laughs> so try to do something about these minorities in such a way that this does not perpetuate their inactivity. It's extremely important from moral and economic point of view. Any further questions? Just one here. I'm wondering whether you mentioned incentives in the legal system. I'm wondering whether compensation incentives in primarily the financial system, do you see them as actually less regulated than they should be, or do you see them as primarily a symptom of essentially loose money? 
Yes, that's a very good question, and your question including the correct response. <laughs> empirically correct response, because there are, again, important uh, uh, empirical investigation, including one by the prominent Indian economist, Raghura Jha, he is in Chicago. And he has shown empirically that the loose monetary policy has contributed to very short-termism and to uh, compensation policy being more and more aggressive. This does not uh, mean that there were no errors. Of course, there were huge errors at the top of financial con some financial conglomerates. But remember that the number of errors depends on environment under which people work. For example, drivers. Yes. Drivers may commit more errors if there is lots of fog and snow. <laughs> So in, this, in the case of financial system, the fog and snow was created by mostly by public authorities. You have more errors. Any, any more questions? So, oh. oh just <laughs> <laughs> still checking the notes. Association, mental association with this new term, gross national happiness. What's your association? My association is Orwell. You've heard about Orwell. <laughs> yes? Of course, you can't prohibit various uh, inventions, but to make such very complex indicator a target of national policies, meaning using state power, which is ultimately police power, to increase happiness, aggregate terms, is Orwell. Really, it should be it should absolutely crazy. For everybody who believes in human dignity. Because can you imagine you have now this 100 indicators and 50 indicators. It shows that if you do that and you maximize this. I think everybody knows that GDP is very imperfect. But you can't measure economic performance with just one indicator. So attempt to measure with just one leads to Orwell. So you have to have at least several indicators. You have, there's an indicator for inflation. There's an indicator for uh, inequality of chance, opportunity. There's an indicator for growth. And first of all, you should not measure happiness. You should not measure changes in the conditions of life of people only through aggregate indicators. You have to respect values. 
And I think that uh, freedom is an important value. <laughs> Without, there's no dignity within a sufficient freedom. If you have become a prisoner, uh, if you have a pris if, if you're a client of a non-state, non-state, yes, there's a new uh, development, who cares, who try to limit your actions in such a way that you cannot hurt yourself in any way. What about dignity and freedom? There's nothing. So they are fundamental. So I think this is just over. Uh, completely. And, uh, I think people who care about the fundamental values of Western civilization, just freedom and dignity, should love at it, but effectively, so that this is not being pursued. <laughs> Well, I think it's too simplistic to measure social satisfaction with the uh, election participation. <laughs> so you're yes. So what did you say? Okay, I think people were deprived of socialism. But I don't think depriving them of socialism meant depriving them of social wealth. And what is social wealth, by the way? How do you define social wealth? Because you said people were deprived of social wealth. Social, is it correct, or I am miss? Yes. No, look, look, look. I in no way, I am in no way proposing to prohibit psychologists from measuring various aspects. <laughs> <laughs> so be, there's no worry for you. I am only saying that for national authorities to make a target of a state power, a maximization of a sort of a complex factor which includes various measures of supposedly psychological well-being is Orwell. It's just Orwellian. This is my point. Sure, but unfortunately I'm not the only one. <laughs> any, any more questions? I, I, let me more concrete. I know this more or less these studies. And these studies show Professor Layard has published a small booklet on happiness. They studies so, show, for example, <coughs> that people, some people feel worse in the present presence of better off people. What would be the policy conclusion? You should, you should do something about better off people. So in this way, you, in a way, support envy. If you come first, and this is, it does not require very deep psychological study, that some people are 
are feeling a certain discomfort when they view better off people. The old-fashioned name for this is envy. And the, the progress has to measure envy. Okay, this is nothing revolutionary. But what would be the policy conclusion? You reduce all the inequalities to zero? Or to what measure? Inequality is not of chance, but of situation. What is the policy conclusion? Orwellian. You would have to go back to socialism. To happiness, social happiness. Yes. This is the ultimate measure. This is the ultimate conclusion. Uh, if you think logically, these various measures, you, you, you end in this. But psychologists are free to investigate. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, but there are ev some people are even more angry when there is a very bad stagnation. Ask those people in Cuba. This I can't comment because I under don't understand, but never mind. Okay, what else? Um, the lady. I don't think what does it mean, free education, because I know that uh, your professors are being paid. Or do they work for free? No, paid enough. But anyway, yeah. go on. <laughs> <laughs> so what we are calling free is somebody else is paying for you. I don't think it's very just, especially in the view that those stu students in most countries, including Poland, who got this free education, meaning that other people pay for them, are usually on average for richer families. So this, this is the consequence. So poorer people are subsidizing services which are granted to richer people on average. This is very unjust. I am always surprised that socialists are not condemning that in the name of social justice. So students should pay for it? There's a choice. Either other people pay for you or you and your parents will pay for you. Of course, usually we prefer that other people. You, we like the free lunch, yes? <laughs> as, but since there's such a thing as a free lunch, it means free lunch means that other people pay for you. Take your pick. There's a question just Again, <coughs> realize that most of inequality of chances were created by overextended states. So the initial assumption that without a state there would be huge inequality of opportunities wrong, factually wrong. Until recently you have states where in which people were legally discriminated because they were divided into three states. Remember peasants? Then there were uh, uh, citizens of towns and aristocracy. This was not something free market has created. This was the political power which created. So one of the great achievements of 18th, 19th century was inequality in front of the law. So this was abolished. Uh, in many countries, to become entrepreneur, 
you have to be well politically connected. And this is usually called oligarch. <laughs> but this is not a feature of limited state. It is a feature of expanded state. Yes? If you have so-called free uh, health system, meaning you pay as a taxman, as taxpayer, <coughs> sooner or later, since it is, since, you know, until we are in communism and everything would be, uh, all goods will be free, in a sense that there would be no scarcity. You have to ration the access to goods. Either you ration through price system or you ration in different ways, through queues. And whenever you have long queues, sooner or later, some people want to jump a queue. That's human nature. Is it equality? So it is very, I think, one of the fallacies is to mistake, to misunderstood freedom, market, civil society as a source of huge inequality, while it is the widespread political power which creates most of inequality. This is not to say that if you say, dealing with a legacy of extended state, like socialism, that sometimes you have to engage in things which go beyond properly limited state. If you inherit education inequalities, yes? And you continue for various reasons, tax finance education, and you see that. So you have to think about how to reduce inequalities. Uh, usually, Good education, the quality of education depends on the quality of the teachers. So if it so happens, it happens that, say, in small localities in the villages, you have poorer teachers. You would have to think about the system, how to make extra payments for teachers to move to small localities. But this is not something trade unions are demanding. No, they, dem they demand higher high wages, salaries, without regard the quality of education. So for example, in Poland, we have privileges of the teachers as obtained by the trade unions, teachers trade unions. This is called teacher's chart. There's nothing in it which would, be sh which would show that they care about e education inequalities. Nothing, just privileges for the profession as a whole. So summing up, it's a fallacy to think that uh, Inequalities come naturally whenever you have limited state, because it is an overextended state which creates most of the harm of inequalities. But if you inherit in certain situations, I think you need some interventions to deal with the inherited inequalities. Basically, we are speaking about education in the early age, and that matters because how people develop later depends on according to psychologists, uh, what happens to them in the early age. And early education matters. This is why I'm a believer in uh, trying to reduce inequalities in the early education. Professor Belkovich, I'd just like to take you up on a question that was actually raised by the two questioners over here. I understand your objections and concerns about some overall aiming, aspiring to some overall collective notion of happiness. Now, my understanding, it might be wrong because I'm not sure of the research, is the highest levels of psychiatric illness are found in rich liberal societies. That might not, that might, um, people who know better than me can uh, argue that, but certainly all the DSM, which is the Bible of psychiatrists and psychologists, relies on research from the US. 
Now, if that were the case, and I stress if that were the case, because I'm not sure, would that affect your attitude to rich liberalism? If the effect of rich liberalism is it makes us all wealthier, but 15% of us mad, does not that normatively mean that there is some room for government intervention there? Because this is a little bit, I mean, US studies, I think I'm right in saying, saying it's about 20 to 25% of us will undergo psychiatric illness at some point. This is the US. The, um, um, should we not worry about that one in five? Well, on your assumption, it's, it's the, assumption the more you get question. richer, the, but your assumption suggests, I, I would first of all look at the data. Okay. First. Okay, but if you don't data found that? No, then I, well, without looking at the data, I would not say more. But even, a, well, it's extremely doubtful that you can find a strong, strong and lasting links between uh, the growth of the economy and uh, the share of illnesses of this kind. Remember that, for example, Swedish. You know the Swedish people, they are very healthy. They are very fond for sports. But the percentage of Swedish people who enjoy and benefit from sickness benefits has been growing constantly over time. Why? Because the generosity of sickness benefit has been increased. So you create the supply of healthy, unhealthy people even in very healthy society. I would look at that and no, then you invent new kind of illnesses. So look first of that <laughs> before you jump to more radical conclusions. It was just exploring the relationship. It wasn't actually saying there was a... Sorry. Yeah. No, no. Let's just take any more questions. Yes, we'd better go in less dangerous directions. But anyway. Ah, global warming. Yes. First of all, why should they be tackled? You should ask a fundamental question, NDVS, at what speed and by what methods? Yeah, I don't want to enter in a uh, huge discussion, but I may, if you wish. I may say that even before the recent disclosed uh, instances of what to, how to call it polite, uh, not the most honest research standards, as being practiced by the most proper, prominent scientists of proponents of global warming, as a man of average intelligence would have a serious doubts about the case. <laughs> and there are four or five questions I ask. First, how strong is the proof that you have an inexplorable tendency for global warming, given the history of our planet? Remember Middle Ages? <laughs> Remember and when it was until recently that 
wine was grown in Britain. And then we have the glacier age. Second, even if you prove that, which we cannot prove, that is something which is, un which is going to go on. It, uh, you cannot prove convincingly that it's mostly because of human intervention. And uh, you can read lots of, I, say, I think, scientific stuff linking it to much more powerful causes, including the activity of the sun. Third, <coughs> even if you say yes and yes to first and second question, it does not follow that the best strategies try to slow down the global warming. Because you may spend, you may be much more effective in spending part of it on trying to shield the most affected country against the consequences, like Bangladesh, instead of perhaps wasting this in uh, an attempt to uh, uh, force. If you go for, if you go nevertheless for that strategy of trying to slow down, you have to ask about the costs, which are social costs. I am using this favorite word. Social cost, which means unless you believe in a free lunch, but there is no free lunch. You know, most of these, all of these non-conventional technologies nowadays are very costly. They are hugely subsidized. So if you try to speed up the transition to more costly technologies, it's as though you increase taxes. And if you increase taxes, the final result is unemployment. So you would have increased unemployment. In the world. And, but the popular presentation was like what was a freelance. There are two popular presentations which are very effective, especially as far as young idealistic people are concerned. First, that is cost nothing. But second, otherwise there would be a catastrophe. The globe would stop existing. So if you hear that alternative is catastrophe, you don't think about the cost, because everything is better than catastrophe. And that the sort of uh, the same sort of pseudo justification was presented when countries were in hugely increasing budget deficits. Remember, we have to do it the more the better because otherwise there would be a catastrophe, calling various names, meltdown, collapse, catastrophe, etc. And there was not a calculation, not even an attempt was done to calculate what is the optimal dose of stimulus, what would be the longer term costs. Now, people start to think about exit. They call it exit. <laughs> so we have now, if you have, so <coughs> the rightness or wrongness of the question number three or four depends on the rightness or wrongness of the previous question. So you have, the, uh, you have to multiply the probabilities. Yes. <laughs> so multiply 0 0.5 times 0 0.5 times 0 0.5 times 0 0.5. What do you get? <laughs> what number do you get? for the rightness of the strategy which was adopted at the level of European Union because there were politicians who wanted to present themselves as the saviors of the world. With a, and this no, was not corrected. And we know from experience that biofuels, for example, in Europe are very costly. In the U United States too. So they, have, they require extra subsidies. And it turned out that they contribute to the rises in, a, in the prices of foodstuffs. Well, this was not reversed. So there is no error correction at the policy level in the United in, in, in European Union, so we have to work for that. The errors should be minimized, and if they are committed, they should be reversed. Otherwise, uh, there would be sad consequences from time to time. Okay, what else?
So global warming has already discussed. Are there any global issues left untouched? <laughs> <laughs> One more, I think. This final question. Gentlemen there. Well, this, of course. <laughs> Why? <coughs> I, t I give you one example. One of my students have recently written an interesting thesis comparing Dominicana and Haiti. Remember Haiti. Now, these two countries are on the same island. Fifty years ago, they were very poor, at the same equally poor. Now, Haiti is four times as poor as Dominicana. So Dominicana has, even though mostly dictatorship, not very perfect economy, has been growing four times as fast on the, the height. It's four times. What was the main difference? What was the reason for the main difference? The approximate reason was that the rate of investment in Dominicana was much higher than in Haiti. And you know that investment is very important. By why? The rate of investment in Haiti was so much lower than that in Dominicana. Because in Haiti you have a negative protection, not m less than zero. Negative protection is when you have a unit called state, which is not protecting inv potential investors against private crime, but on top of that, government officials engage in crime against ordinary citizens. This is called failed state. And the cost of a failed state, meaning negative justice system, is such. So terrible poverty in Haiti are much better than not extremely good situation in Dominicana. This is one. So you need to protect property rights have to be not only good in form, private, but they have to be protected. And it matters for investment. Second, at least from the times of Adam Smith, what we know that uh, Wealth depends on the size of the market. So if you expand the market, you expand the number of transactions. But the number of transactions or size of the market depends on how efficiently disputes are resolved. So I mentioned the cost. This is obviously not only arrangement to solve because you have, you have arbitrage uh, and other private arrangement, but still having good costs matters for the economy. Third, the content of, uh, of law matters for the economy. For example, if you ban private ownership, you have socialism and it fails. If you protect debtors very much, let's say you are soft-hearted, you care about ordinary people, so do you want to protect the debtors? What is the social price? If you protect the debtors, but not lenders, what is the price? So credit, if you protect debtors very much, creditor, you don't protect creditors, yes? There would be less credit. Who would risk granting credit if you, if you can't get your credit back, loan back? So it means that would be less credit, or the price of credit would increase, meaning uh, risk premium would increase, what they incur. Oh. If you are very soft-hearted, you care about people. It's usually those care about people tremendously, day and night. And you say, well, well, people should be protected. So if you rent an apartment, 
the law should make it very difficult to evict you. Yes. So protection of those who rent the apartment. This is nowadays in Poland. What is the result? What is the result if you protect those who rent the apartments very, very much? You are economists. No, no one wants to, okay, rent. You, the, the risk to private investment is tremendous. Who would risk buying a building an apartment, financing an apartment, if you would tolerate a person who destroys an apartment, but you cannot evict him? So you don't invest. As a result, you have a shortage of apartments. Legal, for legal, rent. So people go informal. So this is the social price of wrong law. And there are many, many examples. And usually, wrong law is caused by magical thinking, which is the opposite of thinking. <laughs> Remember, magical, th and magical thinking has, has induced by words. Nice words and bad words. Nice words is social, national, everything. You have, you know, national means status. Social means that, uh, or bad words is shock therapy. Capitalist is a very bad word, because it was coined by socialists. Yes, there's a German socialist who coined it in 19th century as uh, invective. And many people dislike socialism because they feel it is an invective. Okay, anything else? <laughs> Look. <laughs> okay, one, one last question. Gentlemen, I don't know what was happening in his mind. I can't say. <laughs> but I can only say that he needs both. So you... Uh, you mean rule of law? Rule of law. State of law is something peculiar. Rule of law. Well, it depends. If you use neither or, it's, first of all, it's bad to operate with dichotomies, usually. So either you have or you don't. Nowadays, we try, uh, we try to measure it. And there are indices like Freedom House, uh, Heritage. You've got indexes from zero or minus to 10. And here you've got the rule of law. For example, court's independence, it's a very important feature of the rule of law. You see that on this measure, who is at the top independence, like Denmark, Finland, New Zealand, Switzerland. But most of Central and Eastern European economies are at the level of Greece, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. So we have a moderate level of rule of law in this respect. If you want to have, want to have uh, let me see, oh, this is another measure. This is the measure of the more or less rule of law with respect to the political regime, <coughs> whether you have if you equate rule of law with a limited power through elections, then you see that there's no much difference between Central and Eastern Europe and uh, Western economies. Now, if you look at the rule of law, this is, ten, this is a summing up of 10 partial indexes, which measure the protection of property rights, uh, the risk of expropriation, etc., etc. So you see that 
these countries are at the top. You have variation here, but uh, the best countries in Central and Eastern Europe are at the level of Spain and Portugal. Greece is going down. And this is the, these are the data which are summarized for 96 to 2006, for the last 10 years. So if you want to, to respond empirically, you can say that there was tremendous change in the direction of the rule of law. Not yet completed, but we are at the moderate level. Thank you very, very much. Um, I have to say the slide I... Oh.